Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 1965, Otis Redding wrote the lyrics to Respect and recorded the song, which became a hit. Two years later, Aretha Franklin recorded her version, and that peaked at number one on Billboard's Hot 100 in 1967. Aretha's interpretation has a feminist take on the song. She made it a feminist anthem. Now there's another take on respect for the very young. Otis Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, has created a children's storybook from the lyrics. The book has wonderful pictures, illustrating the importance of respect for people of all colors and occupations. We'll hear about the 2020 version of R-E-S-P-E-C-T later in the hour. First... Nonviolent protest explained to children on stage as the Alliance Theater begins streaming its family series today with a sit-in. The Alliance Theater takes special care with its children's programming, and the result is comprehensive. Their education program begins with children from age 12 months, we're talking one-year-olds, on up through teen years. Christopher Moses is the Director of Education and Associate Artistic Director of the Alliance. He joins us now with the Alliance Mellon Playwright-in-Residence, Pearl Clegg. What a delight to have you both zooming in. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely, Lois. Wouldn't miss a chance to talk to you. Well, given the pandemic, how did you put together a season for the Children's Theater? The decision we made early on was to move all of our programming virtual. There just seemed to be so much uncertainty for families, for students, for educators. And we thought the sooner we could make that decision, that would just be one constant. So people wouldn't have to wonder and wait and see if and when we'd be creating these incredible experiences for young people. I think a lot of folks have come to rely on us um, to develop stories that are uh, um, developmentally appropriate for every possible age group. And Lois, I will say we have audience members who are even younger than one years old. <laughs> so it, it just took a lot of creativity and a lot of faith on the entire team to say, no matter what, we are still going to tell stories. So Pearl and I had discussions early on uh, at the end of March and just kind of linked arms and said, you know, we at our heart, we need to tell stories to the community and we need to figure out how, what we do and why we do it has not changed one single bit. For example, the first play, yours, Pearl, sit in. It's gonna be very different 
because we're doing animation for these characters, which is really a wonderful opportunity for us to do something brand new and a terrifying opportunity for me to do something brand new because I know nothing about animation. So we've been working to try to figure out what does that mean? What does it look like? And I'm so excited about what the team has been putting together because it allows us to have some of the um, wonderful things that filmmakers have at our disposal that we don't usually use on the stage so that we can use archival footage to tell the story um, of the sit-in movement. But we can also use footage from today because we are, are linking the sit-in movement to young people today marching for climate change so that we're, we're hoping that by telling these stories in ways that are, are new but accessible and much more comfortable um, sometimes for our young participants um, who grew up with all of this technology, but it, it's giving us a great opportunity to continue to reach audiences and new audiences and growing audiences who are bringing their own expectations of what they want to see. Sit-in is inspired by the picture book written by Andrea Pinckney and illustrated by her husband, Brian Pinckney. We spoke when the exhibition was about to open at the High Museum, and it was not only a fascinating discussion because of the wonderful books and the beautiful illustrations, but just talking about how one approaches such serious material, material that has violence and even tragedy. How do you approach that for young children? The main thing is you have to tell children the truth, but you have to tell them the truth in an age-appropriate way so that very young children can understand fairness. They can understand discrimination and segregation in terms of fairness, because children are very attuned that that's not fair. And I watched um, Andrea Pinkney when she was here for our reading in front of a group of third graders, which was nerve wracking, but turned out wonderfully. I watched her lead a discussion with those very young audience members about fairness. How can you tell when something isn't fair? How do you intervene when something isn't fair? So that I think that the, the challenge that we had was not telling them everything was fine and it was easy, but also knowing that um, there are, are um, stories that have to be built over time so that their first exposure may be to the beginnings of the, the sit-in movement. And while they will know that there was violence because in our play, one of the very young participants asked her grandfather who was um, in the sit-ins um, here in Atlanta, you know, did anybody ever get hurt? And he tells her the truth, yes, some people even died. And were you ever afraid? And he says, yes, I was. Because I think the truth within the context of a fully told story um, is not something that will terrify children, but that will help them understand the world around them um, as they grow into it. You approached painful material when you wrote a play for middle schoolers some years back. And I remember your telling me that you were thinking about your 11-year-old grandson, I believe, at the time. Yes. That, you know, for kids who came of age during President Obama's years, the events of the early 20th century just not only were remote, they were almost impossible to understand. And with this, I know you were an activist yourself. You, you witnessed protests and sit-ins. How much of your experience are you bringing to this children's play? Oh, I think a lot of my experience, the, the fact that I grew up in a movement family and was very involved in picketing places and, and having um, an active role in voter drives. And I was in Detroit so that I was not in uh, places where we were actually afraid of 
physical violence um, from the sheriff and things like that. But we were definitely challenging the mores and the way things were done. But I think that because I grew up in it, I never was afraid of it. So that when writing about this little girl who wants to be involved, she isn't really afraid because she is growing up in a family, which she discovers um, during the course of our play, a family that already has this history, a grandfather who has this history. Because I think the context is everything and helping children understand the context of what they're looking at when they look at the news today. If they have a context that allows them to understand how these issues develop and what they can do, it will actually reassure them that the country is moving in a righteous direction, that things used to be very different and now they're better because citizens got involved. So that's always what we want is for people to understand the history and then to embrace being involved in making that history. Will the animation in the film reflect the pictures, the illustrations Brian Pinckney made for the book? They will certainly reference some of his work. The one image that has been instrumental and kind of our North Star for the entire project is the lunch counter um, with its bends and turns and twists. And that was the one image that kept coming back to as well. And now we were able to invite these filmmakers into the process. And from day one, that was part of the conversation. And our filmmakers, I, I have to reference Matthew and David Ataboye, who are the founders of Palette Group, have just been incredibly generous and creative and willing to test out this new form of storytelling. Um, and while the animation is, is wholly its own thing, just as Pearl's play is not a retelling of sit-in, um, but is a, a completely contemporary um, fictionalized story of this family, the, the animation will live in a different world, but that central image is front and center and it would be impossible to be where we are without coming back to that image constantly. So will the play, the animation for sit-in live on virtually or is it a limited run just as a play would have a limited run? Lois, that is such a, a, a wonderful question. And, and there have been several gifts within the the sometimes unbearable constraints of having to create this way but but one of those gifts is that finally we are not as ephemeral as we normally are it is not that there is all this work put into a four-week run given the platform there is a chance that this could live on not only throughout the entire school year but even beyond so that students educators family can families can return to this story um, as a way to open up conversations uh, about some difficult things and as a way to start making sense of what's going on in the world. What Pearl has written is beautiful in so many ways, but one of my favorite parts about it is that this is an intergenerational conversation that is at the heart of this play. So it really does give people from different generations a chance to enter into conversations that they may normally avoid having with either younger people or older people. Pearl is wonderful at doing that. I saw on the credits under Pearl's name, it lists others. And one that surprised me was original compositions by Eugene H. Russell IV. Is that our Eugene Russell, the actor? Yes, it is, who is also a very talented musician. He is a wonderful uh, keyboard player, saxophone player, and composer of music. And we have been so just really uh, fortunate to have him. He did um, some music from the wonderful production for young audiences about Blackbird. He did all original music, and he's doing original music for us as well. So it's our same Eugene, the wonderful actor, who is also a wonderful music person. I gotta say, with the likes of Willpower and Pearl Clegg, these kids are getting quite the sophisticated treatment from playwrights. This is extraordinary. 
There is nothing so challenging as trying to write a play for young people, very young people, because you have to throw your ego out the window and just focus on how can I tell them the story in a language that will make them love it. It's a humbling experience, but it's exhilarating when it works. So it's it's kind of like adult audiences, except scarier. <laughs> <laughs> More honest, I would say, for sure. Yeah. One of my favorite audiences, Pearl, ever for a workshop, we were doing a reading, Pearl referenced it earlier, of sit-in back when this was a theatrical play. And we invited a, a group of third graders and there were maybe 20, 70, 80 year olds in the audience as well. And just that intergenerational audience was dynamic. You would see the older crowd watching the third graders, the third graders just immediately responding however they wanted to. And, and as Pearl said, you can't hide behind any kind of politeness from an audience, you are hearing exactly what they are thinking. Chris Moses is the Director of Education and Associate Artistic Director of the Alliance Theatre. We heard him with Mellon Playwright-in-Residence, Pearl Clegg. Sit-in will stream online beginning today through February 28th. You can find more information at alliancetheater.org. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Respect, a new book for young children, is based on one of the greatest songs of the 20th century. Otis Redding's song lyrics are brought to the page with wonderful illustrations by Rachel Moss. Otis and Zelma Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, is the VP and Executive Director of the Otis Redding Foundation. She's with us now via Zoom. Carla, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here with you today. As am I. How did this picture book come about? Well, it was quite interesting. Um, I think what happened was is a, a lot of organizations had been paying attention to what we at the Otis Reading Foundation had been doing as it relates to literacy and music and arts education. And then going back to um, how adamant my parents were about education and reading. So somehow we teamed up with Akashi Books to present this beautifully illustrated song lyric book that, that talks about what is so, so needed in the world today and, and will be always be needed in the world today. Oh, yes. In fact, I said... Your dad wrote one of the greatest songs of the 20th century, but it's really a song for our time and has never diminished in its impact or appeal. Now, your dad wrote the lyrics in 1965, and his song recording became a hit. Two years later, Aretha Franklin recorded her version and that peaked at number one on Billboard's Hot 100 list in 1967. Aretha's interpretation has a feminist take on the song. It's very much a feminist anthem. How does this book present a children's story from your father's lyrics? Well, you know, what we really did with, with the book and, and when I was working with the book publisher and we were trying to determine, should we, should we intertwine the lyrics? Should we just use Otis Redding's lyrics or should we use Aretha's lyrics? And really, we felt like Aretha's lyrics and, and her whole chain of the song kind of really relayed over to, to kids and young girls today while still being able to filter over into a young male perspective. 
you know, it, it kind of takes on both sides of it, actually. And, and it talks about respect for yourself as a young woman or a young man, and also respect for those, the people that you should have around you. What you want, honey, you got it. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for a little when I the gamut on, on both the, the, the female and the male perspective, in my opinion. Very much so. And I have been in radio for over 40 years. I've never felt my medium is limited, but I wish people could see these illustrations as we're talking, Carla, because they are as exuberant as the song lyrics and I was wondering if you would talk about some of the images that are portrayed in the storybook and and the messages, the lessons they convey. Absolutely. You know, what we really wanted to to come across in this is, is not only for black and brown children, but for children around the world to understand that the word respect will get you to any path that you want to take, any positive path that you want to take, whether it's a teacher or whether you want to fly a plane or whether you want to serve your country. All of those things are about respect. And it's so beautifully depicted in the illustrations by Rachel Moss. And it's so colorful and it, it really just crosses the gamut in terms of diversity with, with the kids and, and the black and the brown and, and the, the white. It's just a cross-pollination of cultures. And, and it understands that respect is, is due to everyone and to be given by everyone. Indeed. And we have so many professions that are portrayed. I'm on a page where I see three women scientists. Well, actually, there are four. Two of them are little girls, and the little puppy dog is also reading the science book. We have a, we have a visual painter. We have ballet dancers, and <laughs> we have doctors. We have lawyers. We have judges. You yes, know, we have all just a whole gamut of of professions that we don't want to limit any imagination to what you can be with, with when you get respect and give respect. There's no limit to the imagination. And so we, you know, we just wanted to make sure that kids knew, listen, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, these people who worked so hard during their era knew that this one word would make all of the difference uh, in their lives. And, and both of them certainly continue to to earn respect today by by what they left their legacy and now to be able to put it over onto the pages of a picture book is just amazing and it, it really takes the song to a whole new level because there are a lot of kids i'm sure who have who have heard their parents singing both versions of the song but now they get to to put their creative spin on it and and read it from for themselves on, on, in this greatly illustrated book and taking it into the year 2020 when we get to the pages that say sack it to me sack it to me sack it to me sack it to me all four members of the family portrayed in the book the mother, the dad, the little girl, and the little boy are costumed as superheroes with 
capes. Absolutely. Sock it to me, sock whatever you want to me, but I can still overcome and respect. A little respect is all I need to make that, to make my superpowers work for me. Carla, one of the most powerful lines in the song Respect is find out what it means to me. And after the story with illustrations concludes, the last two pages of the volume contain questions for the young reader or the young child being read to. Would you please tell us about that concluding section? Absolutely. I think, you know, the illustrators wanted to make sure that this was more than just a book of illustrations and, and words. It was really, uh, it's a tool to interact with, with kids about what respect means. Can you respect someone even if you're mad at him or her? You know, things that, that certainly fit right into today's culture, into what's going on in the world with, with so much risk of planting negative seeds in your mind. But the learning tool in the back opens up the imagination for a, a, a child to understand, well, all I got to do is give a little bit of respect for myself and I, I will feel a whole lot better. And once I respect someone else, that's even really going to make me feel a whole lot better. So to be able to take these 10 questions uh, that have been created as an interactive learning tool, I think will really spark the imagination even more in kids on how important that the, the word respect means and what the, the lyrics in this song means. Mm. Carla Redding Andrews, I am not trying to flatter you when I say that I feel like this book is one of the best things to come out in 2020. Oh, <laughs> it is just pure joy and delivers a message so profound and it's so deeply needed now. I congratulate you and the illustrator Rachel Moss and this has just been such a delight. I am one who is in awe of your father's legacy and thank you for continuing it through the foundation. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it, it was so important. This foundation was established on, on a whole dream or a premise that my father put in place in 1966 before his untimely death. You know, he was adamant about the importance of education, the, the importance of continuing education, the importance of literacy, the importance of music and arts education. And that's what we do. So, you know, to be able to partner with Akashi and with, with the illustrator, Rachel Moss, and to bring his, his lyrics, his, his one of his most famous songs to a young mind is, is certainly benefiting of what the mission of the foundation is. Carla Redding Andrews is the daughter of the late Otis Redding and VP and executive director for the Otis Redding Foundation. Their new children's book, Respect, is available now. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Gardening can provide tremendous satisfaction for those who are in good physical condition. For those with challenges, gardening hasn't always been accessible. Even visiting some gardens can be difficult. 
Now, there's a community resource in Atlanta to change that situation. Brooke Adams, co-arts education director for Callenwald Fine Arts Center, and Rachel Cochran, the founder of Trellis Horticultural Therapy, joined me in November ahead of the grand opening of Callenwald's Ability Garden. First, Brooke explained how their partnership came about. I actually reached out to Trellis. Callenwald completed the restoration of a greenhouse on our campus in 2017. And we also received a fund called the Frank Barm Fund that specifically is to make the arts accessible for those with mental and physical disabilities. And with those two things, we saw Trellis as an amazing organization to partner with and offer their horticultural therapy programming on our campus. Rachel, please tell us a bit about Trellis and how it got its start. Trellis is a 501c3 organization. It was founded at the end of 2017. So 2018 was really our first year of operation. So we're a fairly young nonprofit, but I feel like we're really breaking down barriers, so to speak, in the world of accessible gardening. Trellis has a co-founder. Her name is Wendy Battaglia. And Wendy currently works on a part-time basis at the Shepherd Center, working as a horticultural therapist with brain and spinal cord injury patients. So we are very, very well versed in disability. I am a trained horticultural therapist, but I also had an experience in my family. My daughter, when she was 12, was hit by a car and she was seriously injured and has a traumatic brain injury, which causes lifelong injuries and challenges, but she is mobile. But I think it really took having that up close and personal experience with disability to really help me to fully understand the isolation and the hardships that come for people with impaired physical mobility or cognitive disability that, you know, getting out and participating in recreational, enjoyable activities and just being connected as a community is really a challenge. I've been a lifelong gardener and I've always been very observant and just really noticed that their gardens are not set up for people that can't walk. Community gardens, you know, the surface is not wheelchair friendly. I did my horticultural therapy internship at a wonderful organization called Skyland Trail. It's an inpatient mental health for youth and adults here in Atlanta. And we had a visitor come uh, who had a brain injury and was in a wheelchair. And we really had a hard time maneuvering that person through the garden because it just wasn't set up for wheelchairs. And so moving forward, Trellis, you know, we use the power of plants and gardening to change people's lives by uh, creating activities with purpose and combating isolation and building community. Can you tell us about the therapeutic quality of gardening? You mentioned being outdoors, being engaged with others, seeing plants and beauty around you. What further therapy is involved for those living with physical or cognitive disabilities that gardening can provide? I can speak all day on that, (laughs) but (laughs) I'll try to keep it short and simple. I think the best thing to, to give everyone an overview is that gardening is such a normalizing experience that pretty much everyone has some familiarity and comfort with, you know, outdoors and plants. Horticultural therapy focuses on goals. 
So there are treatment goals. And if you're in a clinical setting like Shepherd Center, the goal can be to, you know, use my hands again. And gardening has so much handwork where you're, you know, holding a trowel or scooping soil or potting plants or holding a watering can. And also, if you are mobile but maybe are recovering from an injury, you can stand and walk and bend and stoop. So it's a wonderful, happy place to be if you're in a recovery scenario, like a rehab hospital. But the other angle is there's a lot of emotional support that comes with gardening. And I would like to just touch a little bit on, I work with a group of incarcerated women in DeKalb County, and we teach them organic farming skills, and they donate the food to a local food pantry. So what that is doing for them is the garden has become this just magnificent space that makes people happy and provides a refuge and provides focused activities that really help them cope with prison life. And then being able to grow the food and donate it to the outside community really makes them feel connected to the community, unlike they would have that opportunity. And they're also learning a lot about healthy food. And a lot of them have dreams of, you know, being gardeners or starting their own farm when they get released. It's very powerful the way people just become alive, you know, when they're in a gardening scenario. And you're providing them with a sense of purpose as well. I did a session at our transitional center where the incarcerated women are, you know, learning skills and, you know, they're able to get out and get a part-time job in the community while they're still incarcerated. But it's a step to getting them closer to getting back to the community and, and getting their lives back. But one of the women came up to me and said how much she loved working with plants and that her dream was to create a farm-based skin body product company, that she wanted to be an entrepreneur, that that was her dream. Wow. Now, the Ability Garden will debut at Callenwald on November 14th. What makes up an Ability Garden? Well, Callenwald itself is just a, an incredible space. I mean, you go down the driveway, you feel like you're in another land. The trees are huge. The wildlife is running amok. There's a fox family and not to mention just the beauty of the home and, and the old trees. But Callenwald is set up with a, a beautiful glass greenhouse that has a wheelchair accessible pathway. And when we saw that, the you know, the lights clicked. We're like, this is the place. This is the place we've been looking for because up until now, Trellis has been taking its programs to other organizations. Some of the organizations we serve are Kate's Club. We work with a housing organization here in Atlanta called Mercy Housing. I do a senior garden club. We have a mental health facility out in Sandy Springs called the Cottages at Mountain Creek. I had some at-risk youth students down in Vine City that I worked with last year. So we were really running all over Atlanta, and our dream was to have a space that we could call home and that people could come to us and we could have a garden space that would be ours there we could do programming out of. But it had to be <laughs> impaired mobility friendly. And when we saw that greenhouse with the wheelchair access, we just thought it was a great fit. And so Callenwald has some surrounding garden spaces that um, we are working on. And we just built a beautiful raised bed garden that is now fully wheelchair accessible as well. And it's really been great because people, I won't say they're beating the doors down, but <laughs> everyone I run into sounds like, yes, we would love to have a piece of this. This sounds exactly like what we need. So uh, the, the, our first clients was wonderful special ed students out of Inman Middle School. And they were right down the street from Callenwald and just a bus ride away. So we worked with the special ed teachers and we've done several sessions with them. Everything kind of hit a standstill this year with uh, the pandemic, 
but the special ed students really do not have a lot of opportunity to get outside and garden and, and be in the nature setting. And we provide purposeful activities in the greenhouse for them, learning about plants, growing food. Uh, one of the sessions we did was making cookies for the birds. So we made bird seed cookies and oh, we got to hang them up all over Kellenwald. And, you know, it was a way to just connect the students to something fun and different and connect them to nature and the teachers just think it's a wonderful thing. It teaches them about focusing and paying attention and following directions and they love it. The thing is it's so easy because they really enjoy it. They love the plants. They love the freedom to walk and walk on the trails and be outside. And then I work with the Stroke Survivors Support Group out of Emory Rehab Hospital and I have a new client, which is the Ruby A. Neeson Diabetes Foundation. It's an education and awareness support organization for people living with diabetes. And we're hoping to start a new monthly support group for them focused on healthy eating and growing food and just building community. I read that the entire Ability Garden at Callenwald was built in one month. Is that correct? <laughs> well, I'll say I have some wonderful volunteers. My husband's one of them. I happen to be surrounded by engineering type men. And so they got out there and helped design it. And the Atlanta Botanical Garden actually donated the lumber. So I wanted to give a big shout out to Mo Hemmings is the community outreach manager for the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And she helped us get the project off the ground with the lumber donation. Callenwald has been supportive the whole step of the way. <laughs> Brooke always said just whatever you need, whatever you need. But the thing about Callenwald and gardening is, you know, my, my dream is it's going to be Atlanta Botanical Garden number two. So in order to make that happen, we want it to be a special place, a beautiful place, and Rome was not built in one day. So while the raised beds are there and functioning and the greenhouse is amazing, we envision, you know, working with our groups to, you know, create this space. And we want our, our clients to do it and to be a part of it because I think buy-in is very important and we want them to have a part in building this garden that we hope will be a legacy for Callenwald and Atlanta. I'd like to say also not only that, but Rachel was out there every single day. It wasn't just volunteers. It was definitely a labor of love and that was evident seeing Rachel and Trellis out there every day building this garden. So Rachel, it's not just <laughs> everyone. You really drove this forward and it's so appreciated. Well, it, is, it is passion. We are very passionate. We believe in what we're doing. And some, I was laughing. I said, you know, if I had a choice between going to Italy or starting a new garden, I think I'd pick start a new garden. <laughs> it's just, I love purpose and reward. What types of plants are you growing in the Ability Garden at Callenwald? I'll say the ones I'm dreaming of growing. So, well, the funny thing about the Callenwald greenhouse is it was put in a couple years ago, but no one was actually grooming the space. They have a beautiful community garden in the back, but the front of it's a little ho-hum. So I said, you know, we got to make something happen out here. So I started in July building a, a native plant garden. And I love education. I love teaching people about plants. So what's in the native plant garden is, uh, you know, simple things, you know, marigolds and zinnias. And I put in some purple okra plants because they're very magnificent looking when they start growing. We have some grasses and uh, some herbs. You know, it's a work in progress, but I'm kind of a pseudo landscape designer. So I'm always looking at the period of Callenwald and what plants will go there and trying to keep it historically accurate. And, and the raised beds, of course, we love to grow vegetables because my kids, when you plant a sweet potato and they get to pull that thing up in you know, four or five months when it's ready to be harvested, it's like 
you know, digging for buried treasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that raises a question I had. You mentioned the at-risk youth you work with and the special ed students. Gardening requires patience. I wondered how you provide the encouragement and the reward that may need to come sooner with some of your volunteers? <laughs> That's a very good question <laughs> because I was looking at the raised beds yesterday and we we have we do have a wonderful partnership. One of my grant partners is the Paideia School. And the Paideia School has their own growing operation. They have a tremendous urban agriculture program for their students. But part of it is a social justice initiative. And so uh, Paideia grows the plants for my trellis programs. And so I have farmer Aaron at the Paideia School who always has something ready for me. So if I feel like we need something more immediate with our groups instead of starting something from seed, then I have I have those plants available. And we did, we just, we had planted greens and Swiss chard and, and romaine lettuce and, you know, there they all, you stick them in and the kids are like, wow, this is great. <laughs> do, do they ever eat with you? Um, you know, they haven't yet because we just started the program with the students at the end of the year. Uh, but Brooke, you know, Brooke, we might want to touch on the the Callenwall Gala because that was that was really something I've been very hesitant about doing um, virtual sessions with my clients because gardening is so hands on. And, you know, in my mind, I'm just like, you know, there's no way we can do virtual gardening sessions. But Callenwald had a gala and Andrew Keenan, the executive director, thought it would be wonderful if the students could participate in some way. And then we could share about the ability garden at the gala because I think some of the Callenwald supporters really didn't know what was going on with the ability garden. So we worked with the florist, um, Faith Flowers, that Callenwald uses for their events. And we honestly did a video on how to do floral arrangements. These were the centerpieces for the gala. And the teachers at um, Inman Middle delivered all the supplies to all the students. <laughs> the teachers said it took her like three hours one morning to get everything delivered. We did a Zoom session on floral arrangement that afternoon and picked them all up that day. And they honestly looked fantastic. I was thinking we're going to have to spend hours, you know, maybe making them look better <laughs> for the event, but the students did a great job and the parents were just, I think they were so excited because I think learning virtually for special ed students has, has been a challenge and they love hands-on and they love purpose and they build it as a community helper day where, you know, I was a little concerned about having them make flower arrangements and then come pick them up and take them away. And I told the teachers, I said, well, can we do another one with them so they can have one at home? And she says, you know, they're learning. They're learning about helping and that they're helping the community. They're helping Callenwald raise money for these types of programs. And I thought that was a wonderful lesson. And it was also a lesson for me. It, it is a great lesson. Brooke, this is for you as well as Rachel. How do you hope to see the Ability Garden and other such programs related to it expand over the next few years? I think that this Ability Garden is sort of like a seed being planted at Cowanwald to really make all of our programs accessible. You know, we're in a historic campus 100 years old and the Frank Barham Fund and Trellis and this Ability Garden just sort of feel like the beginning of the next chapter for Callenwald to be more accessible in our programming and to offer therapeutic services such as this horticultural therapy. So the next chapter I just see this flourishing. I see all of our grounds being more accessible. I see us doing more horticultural therapy across our campus, making 
a more sustainable campus. It's really exciting. I feel like this partnership is just the beginning of a whole new chapter at Cowanwald, and we're really excited about it. Brooke had a session with some artists about making some planter-type pottery for the garden so we can have a fusion of nature and art because it is an artist center. And um, we do a lot of nature art with, with our clients, which I love. We do pressed flower art. I've been doing that with my uh, incarcerated women. And we have big plans for some holiday activities. We're going to do a couple holiday wreath workshops at Callenwald. One of my dreams is some of the middle school students at Inman Middle graduated and went on to high school. And when you start growing plants, especially in a greenhouse, it requires a big personal commitment to take care of those plants and help them grow and become, you know, a, an asset for our organization. Because I told Brooke, I said, I'm tired of buying plants. We're going to grow all our plants ourselves one day. So I'm in early stages of talking with the APS high school about a vocational training program for some of the high school students with, with special needs. I think gardening and landscaping are great career pathways. And so I hope that something like that can happen um, in 2021. Brooke Adams, co-arts director of arts education for Callenwold Fine Arts Center. And Rachel Cochran, co-founder of Trellis Horticultural Therapy Alliance. Trellis will offer new garden therapy groups starting in March for adults with spinal cord and brain injuries, as well as veterans diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. For more information, you can visit the Trellis website at trellishta.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., our guest will be Chris Escobar, the founder and director of the Atlanta Film Festival. He'll tell us about their Satellite Screens Initiative with the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Have a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.